You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that you would teach us and instruct us, Lord. Father, we long to uh, come and gather together and sit around your word and study your word. And Father, we ask that you'd be pleased to teach us this morning. You'd be pleased to open our hearts that otherwise would be closed. That you'd be pleased to open our minds, make us teachable. Show us, as we've read from Psalm 119 this morning, show us wondrous things from your law, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Now, last week, we followed Jesus and his disciples as they made their way from uh, Jerusalem out into the Judean countryside. And there we come to something that's actually quite interesting in terms of the ministry of Jesus. We come to uh, a portion, a very short portion, where the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner, actually overlaps with Jesus for a very short period of time. And uh, we are told there in verses 22 and 23 that Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside and they're baptizing. And in verse 23, we see that John also is baptizing. And in verse 25, we saw that a discussion, even a controversy arose uh, between some of John's disciples and an unnamed Jew over purification. And I, it was conjecture on my part, but um, some of the commentaries say the same thing. Uh, perhaps the issue of purification was how these baptisms, the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, how does that fit in the grand scheme of things with the external purification rites? I think, again, as I said last week, I feel the same way. I think it would be a fascinating thing to study. And it would have been an absolutely fascinating thing to ask John the Baptist, or even more so, to ask Christ himself. How does that fit in? Now, as much as we could find ourselves lost in that question, in that um, uh, quandary, we see that a greater problem surfaces in verse 26, because they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, in other words, teacher, he was with you across the Jordan. To him you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing. And... Everyone's going to him. So you see, they're, they're, they're upset. Um, they're, uh, they're not happy about this. And as I said last week, John answers in verse 27 and following with an extraordinary humility, uh, extraordinary humility. And what I tried to flesh out last week is that it's an informed humility, and perhaps that'll help you remember a little bit of that discussion. But if you look at verse 27, John begins to answer his disciples. He says, listen, you cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to you from above or from heaven. You know, growing up as a kid in our worship service, growing up as the offering was taken up, we used to sing the doxology, and maybe some of you will be familiar with that particular form of liturgy. And the doxology is simply one, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You know, praise him all you here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. 
Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And what that recognized and what that literature, it's a rich liturgy, it's actually wonderful liturgy. And what it recognizes as we're putting our offerings in the basket and taking our offerings up, what we're singing and what we're recognizing is that there is nothing good in our lives that has come to us but from God's gracious hand, isn't it? And that's a great thing to reflect on as we think about all of the good things that have come to our lives. All blessings flow from the Lord. And I would include to that public reception of ministry, which is a fascinating thing. It's not the subject of this morning's talk, but if we might just digress for a moment. Notice that, you know, the context here is John's disciples are upset because all these people are going to Jesus. And John answers by saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. And of course, what would be included in that is the public reception of John's ministry. Um, I pointed out to you last week that Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. I would invite you to turn there, keep your place in John. We'll only take a moment here. Just a couple of verses I'll share. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. And we have found that the Corinthian, 1 Corinthians really shine, shines a lot, on, a lot of light on John's gospel, doesn't it? But there in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Notice what he says after that. As the Lord assigned to each. In other words, those who are following Apollos are those whom the Lord has assigned to Apollos. Those who are following Paul are those who the Lord has assigned follow Paul. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians with me. I don't think I shared this verse with you last week. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. This is a fascinating little insight here along the same lines. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Paul says, We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of what? Influence. The area of influence God has assigned to each of us to reach even to you. Well, again, that just fills me full of praise. I mean, um, who's going to come up the steps on a particular Sunday morning? Those whom the Lord influences to come up the steps on a particular morning. A great famous preacher, Alexander White, or somewhere, I think, after the turn of the century, uh, that is the 19th to the 20th century, was a guest speaker. He had traveled some distance to speak somewhere, and it was, the weather was terrible. Not many showed up, and people felt like they needed to apologize to Alexander White because there wasn't a lot of many people showing up. And, and uh, of course, Alexander White would have none of it. And he said, listen, I will preach to all whom the Lord brings. I will preach to all whom the Lord brings. And that's the same thing, you see. A lot of times we get up in the morning and we put on our clothes and off to church we go thinking that this is all us doing it. And this kind of points out that, well, guess what? Behind our efforts is is he who is greater than us, isn't he? Motivating us. See, all the glory is his. We can't take in and steal any of that glory for ourselves. So I, I didn't think you'd mind a, just a quick little digression there. John is saying all blessings flow from the Lord. That would include public reception of his ministry. 
And furthermore, his humility is being informed by his assignment. You know, Paul in verse 28, he says, listen, you guys all know how many times I've said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And if you turn back to John chapter 3, verses 1, or I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, John chapter 1, uh, verse, we'll say 19, John 1, 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? In verse 20, look what he says. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They, they continue to ask him, question him in verse 21. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. They said to him, who are you? Verse 23, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, John understands his assignment. That's, that's, that's I think, the largest part of, of humility, if you will, is for us to get in our minds what we are and what we are not, what we are to do, what we are not to do. John is very secure with his assignment, and this comes through with this extraordinary uh, humility. And back to John 3, verse 30, his, his, his one-liner that really clinches it all, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what we have after this is really a very powerful gospel presentation in verses 31 through 36. I don't know if you've ever caught this in reading this section of Scripture. I mean, verse 16 makes the billboard for sure. Verse 16 has been on billboards along highways uh, for a very long time. But verses 31 through 36 is a tremendous gospel presentation. That's what I want to spend the bulk of our time with this morning, that we might feed on this gospel presentation and, and digest it to the point that this presentation is coming out of us uh, kind of naturally as we go through the day. Notice that uh, John is saying in verse 30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He's speaking to his disciples and through his disciples to us. And he gives no less than five reasons why Jesus should increase. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. Uh, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Uh, verse 34, we have two reasons for uh, God has, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So he must increase because he utters the words of God. He also must increase, uh, fourthly, because he has been endowed with the Spirit without measure. And then fifthly, in verse 5, he is to increase because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, set within all of this uh, is a contrast, if you will. Remember the context. John's disciples are upset because more people are coming to Jesus than coming to John. So that is the context. In other words, John's disciples are comparing the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of John. They're comparing these two things in a spirit of competition. So John is now further showing 
why Jesus must increase and he must decrease. And he sets up a couple contrasts. Notice in verse 31, okay, he who comes from above is above all. Now, in contrast, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. You see that contrast there. So not just, uh, not, not just proclaiming that Jesus is above all and superior to all and is from heaven, but making a contrast of who and what Jesus is with the earthly, if you will. And then we see another contrast at the end of verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32 at the end, yet no one receives his testimony. In contrast with verse 33, whoever receives his testimony. So we have no one receiving his testimony, whoever receiving his testimony. There we see another contrast. And then we see a um, final contrast in verse 36. And it's a contrast between belief and obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. We could put it another way. It's a contrast between belief and disobedience. So here we have these five points that are being made presenting Christ, uh, juxtaposed, if you will, with three of these contrasts uh, so uh, masterfully woven uh, together. Let's, uh, let's take a look at each one of these. Let's start with verse 31, and let's take a look at this first point that uh, John gives. He says, he who comes from heaven is above all, or he who comes from above is above all. Now, some of us might say, well, you know, this is not the first time we've been on that string, is it? No. Actually, this keeps coming up. If you recall, some of you, when we began this study of John's gospel, you remember the dolphins. Some of you remember the dolphins. Some of them think the dolphin's really funny. Um, but you know, you're, you're on the beach. If you spend any time at the beach at all, eventually you're going to see a school of dolphins. And what happens? They don't all jump out of the water at once and then submerge. You'll see a couple jump out, back down. A couple others jump up, back down. But they're all right there. The whole school is right there always. And John has all these doctrines. He has all of these key truths that he wants to deliver. And here we'll see that they, they jump out of the text and they kind of submerge. They're always there. They're kind of like threads running through and let me point a few of these out to you. Here he's saying, he who comes from above. Let's start with that. He who comes. Jesus must increase because he has come from heaven. He has come from heaven. And if you go back to verse 16, you can surmise that. For God so loved the world that he gave. Let me just think about that for a minute. For God so loved the world that he could do nothing else. He simply, his love, he could do nothing else but give. And not give what is second best, but he gives his very best. He gives his son. And we could ask, well, just where has his son come from? Well, of course, his son has come from heaven. And verse 17 makes it even clearer. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. In other words, God sends His Son. God gave His Son. God sends His Son, if you will. He is sent from heaven. Verse 19, we see this again. This is the judgment 
The light has come into the world. Well, where was the light? The light is heavenly. That which is heavenly has come into the world. The light has come into the world. Or we could back up to the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. You know, you back up there, and here comes Nicodemus, representative of the Pharisees, uh, those who look beautiful on the outside, yet have no faculty, no ability to change the inside. No amount of personal discipline can change us on the inside, can it? It's not a do-it-yourself project. And here comes Nicodemus. We have very good reason to believe he's one of the leading influential teachers at the time because Jesus refers to him, you are the teacher of Israel. So we have reason to believe he's one of the leading teachers. His question for Jesus, he has something on his mind for coming to Jesus. As we have uh, looked at this several times, his question is not recorded, it's not asked. Uh, But Jesus is reading his heart, obviously. And Jesus says to him, I tell you, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless there's an inward transformation, you cannot cannot see the kingdom of God. He tells him again in verse 5, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There is this need for this inward change, this inward transformation transformation. And in the course of this conversation, Jesus says in verse 13, he says, listen, Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. In other words, what are we to make of that? Well, he said, Nicodemus, listen, if you want to learn about heavenly things, you need to talk to somebody who's been in heaven. No one has ascended into heaven in order to... uh, uh, see and hear all of these things so that he can come back and share all these things. No, only he who was there to start with, he has descended from heaven to make these things known. So you see, what is John teaching us here? Again, he's teaching us that Jesus is from heaven. Now, in terms of superiority, if you look back again to verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is from heaven is above all. In other words, he is from heaven is superior to all, if you will. We could put it that way. And again, we see this. We see this in many, many places. If you look to verse 13 again, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what is Jesus referring to? He's referring to all the way back to Numbers 21, where Israel is marching through the desert. They're grumbling against God. God sends fiery serpents, and they begin to bite them. These poisonous snakes are biting the people. The people begin to die. Moses cries out to God, uh, deliver us. What does does God do? He He says to Moses, listen, Fashion this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up, and it shall be that everyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. And that's what Moses does. And as people by faith look to uh, the bronze serpent, they're healed from the venom, the poison that otherwise would take their life. Now, let's think about that for a moment. By looking to the bronze snake, which is a type of Christ for sure, they're healed from these dangerous, poisonous snake bites. 
But they later do die in the wilderness, don't they? But if you look at verse 15, Jesus is saying in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, whoever believes in Him might not simply be spared of a snake bite. No, He's going to receive something greater than that. What is He going to receive? Eternal life. Eternal life. No, you're, you're going to be saved from cancer. You're going to be saved from tragedy. You're going to be saved from COVID-19. You're going to be saved from everything. Eternal life. We can see Jesus is superior. And then we can continue to go. I mean, if we go back to chapter 2 and look back there, verse 18 and following, you know, Jesus has just cleared the temple. Then the, uh, the uh, temple authorities come to him and say, what sign do you do for showing us this thing, these things? Jesus answers in verse 19, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And there we see the tabernacle and the temple that followed it all, point, all pointed to Jesus because we're told in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So here we see Jesus' superiority to the temple. Jesus' superiority to the temple. And we could go back to this the, the Cana, the story in Cana, some of you maybe wondered, you know, what does is, what is turning water into wine got to do with anything? And as I've shared with you several times, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6 is the key to understanding that, that there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. That's the key to understanding how this fits. These, this water is, was used for the external rite of purification, something Nicodemus would have been really big on. And it actually sets us up for understanding the story of Nicodemus, doesn't it? This external, if you will, purification rite, which had its place. Now, they may be referring to some of the man-made gestures that follow, uh, but the, pure, the, the battery of purification rites that were instituted uh, by God through Moses had their place. They had their place in pointing to Jesus. Were they able to purify the inside? The answer is no. The answer is no. I mean, you work in a garage all day. You can get in the shower and get cleaned up, but that doesn't change your heart, does it? That doesn't change your heart. No. Jesus comes, and what is He showing? By transforming that water into wine, He is showing that these old things are going away. Behold, the new is coming in. The external purification rite that can only wash the outside, that can only be symbolic, has given way. And that the purifier himself is here. The purifier who Nicodemus needs, the purifier who the rest of us needs, he is here. And he can purify both on the outside and on the inside. Amen. Is that a wonderful truth or what? But we could go even further. If you look back to chapter 1, if you look to verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. What would you think of? The Passover is certainly part of the context of these first three chapters, isn't it? In fact, John spends a lot of time with the Passover. We have three Passover events in John's gospel. And what happens at the Passover feast? The Passover lamb sacrificed. In fact, thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrificial lambs will be sacrificed. Who is Jesus? He is the lamb. Not a lamb. He is the lamb. 
He is the one that all of these Passover lambs point to. John tells us this both in verse 29, and he tells us this in verse 36. But really, the big one, if you turn all the way back to chapter 1, in the prologue, the first four verses, here we're told that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. He who comes from above is superior to all. Why? Because he who comes from above is God Himself. God Himself is superior. He is God in the flesh. And that's why in verse 14, we have the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. But if you look at verse 12, maybe we don't think about verse 12 so much, but look at verse 12. This points to it too. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave what? The right to become children of God. Now, who has the right to do that? Only God has the right to do that. Jesus has the right to do that. What a great, what great news that is. In verse 16, from His fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Where do we get this grace upon grace? We get it from His fullness. See, it's always pointing to Jesus, isn't it? It's always pointing to Jesus. And you know, His disciples are hearing this. His disciples are saying, look, look, everybody's going to, to Jesus, John. They're going to Jesus. And John says, ah, he must increase. He must increase. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way you want it to be. This is the way it has to be. I must decrease. Now, when you just take this short little list of verses that we looked at really quickly, and we just start to take this in, we can quickly see how inappropriate it is for a minister to exalt himself and get in between a congregation of people and the God and God himself. We can see just what an aberration that is, what, what an abomination that is uh, to exalt uh, ourselves to get in a place where we are between the people of God and God himself. No, we must decrease. That's why I said last week, those verses are so important for gospel ministry. We must we must decrease. He must increase. Now, lots more time could be spent on that first point. Let's look at the second one. I won't spend quite as much time on it, but if you look at verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus must increase because he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. John's building off the first. He has come from heaven. He has occupied heaven. He has seen heaven. He has heard what goes on in heaven. Now let's think this. Let's just a couple couple thoughts here that I think might set us thinking all day. Is the Son of God has heard every single word that the Father has ever spoken. Is there a word that the Father spoke and said, hey, keep this from Jesus or keep this from the Son of God? That's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. And the same thing could be said of the Holy Spirit. Every word that has been spoken by the Holy Spirit has been heard by the Son. And of course, the Son has heard what He has spoken, 
And this would include all of the words spoken to the prophets. This would include all of the words recorded in Scripture. He's heard them all. Could he forget one of them? And this, this helps us for verse 34, our third reason. For he, who com- for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus utters the words that he has heard. You see, every word that comes from Jesus' mouth is the word of God. And now I think it's time for us to bring in our first contrast. Because if you go back to verse 31, John is saying, he who comes from above is above all, but he who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Now, Jesus don't speak like that. He's from heaven. Every word that comes from his mouth is the word of God. Can that be said of John the Baptist, who is the greatest of all men according to Jesus? No. No, because we know John the Baptist, as holy as he is, as devoted as he is, is still a sinner in need of a Savior. That means there is a remnant of sin that still exists in his heart, and it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And there are some days. We can relate with that, can't we? I can, does every word that come out of my mouth, is that the word of God? My heavens, no. Some of you have hung out with me for extended lengths of time, and you wouldn't ascribe that to the word of God, would you? I'm not trying to make light of it. Hopefully right now what I'm saying is the Word as I'm, as I'm proclaiming the Word of God. It's not that I'm hearing voices and I'm sharing with you. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to explain what is written here. That is the Word of God. But there's a remnant of sin in my heart, and it's out of that remnant of sin that the mouth speaks. So sometimes, sometimes things come out of my mouth I can assure you are not the Word of God, and my wife will bear witness. She will bear witness to that fact, which is why we repent at the end of the day every day, isn't it? Some days are worse than others. Some days are better than others. But in in contrast to that, he who is of the earth speaks in an earthly way, but in contrast to that, he who is from heaven He who's from heaven speaks the word of God always. Now, we could make some application of that. We could could make really a lot of application of that. I mean, there are many voices of the earth competing with Christ's voice, isn't there? As we think about all the voices, Jesus, when he speaks, he always speaks the word of God. But there's a lot of voices out there that are competing with Jesus. Sometimes it's Satan himself speaking. We see that in Genesis 3 where Satan himself speaks to Eve. Sometimes it's Satan himself speaking. But Satan has his minions, doesn't he? Satan has his many minions, the world with all of its false man-made religions. We could say the false prophets, false teachers. These are minions of Satan. And their voices are competing with Christ. Or we might, if I might borrow a term from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the worldly wise man. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you recall the, the, the worldly wise man. It just, when you read that, it just makes you smell. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, okay, I, I, I get that. The worldly wise man. This would be Dr. Phil and Oprah and, and company and 
uh, all of these self-help gurus and motivational speakers that are uh, they're everywhere. Worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. Um, but Jesus, in contrast to that, when he opens his mouth and speaks, it is always God's word. He must increase. He must increase. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Look at the second part. For he gives the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist was endowed with the Holy Spirit. He was endowed with the Holy Spirit, but with measure. The prophets of old were endowed with the Holy Spirit, chiefly and principally just to accomplish the tasks that were at hand. So they were endowed with the Holy Spirit so they could accomplish God's assignment for them. And one of the principal differences between the new covenant or the, the, the new administration of the covenant of grace, if you will, and the old administration of the covenant of grace, one of the chief and principal differences between these two is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? We are blessed to live in a day where God has very liberally poured out the Holy Spirit, but we have not received the Spirit without measure. Jesus, in terms of his humanity, receives the Spirit without measure. And then fifthly, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Uh, A whole sermon series could probably be taught on that single verse right there. But for now, let's just think. It takes us right back to verse 16. The Father loves the Son for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son Whoever believes in him should not have eternal life. And if you look back to verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or even if we went back to verse 12 of chapter 1, which we were on just a a few minutes ago, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He has this right by virtue of his divinity. And Jesus has this right in terms of his humanity. He has this right because it's been given to him from heaven. Well, someone says, well, that sounds confusing. It's confusing if we don't get this down, that Jesus has two natures. One person, two natures. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man in one person. Sometimes when we read through the Gospels, there's an emphasis on his divinity. Sometimes when we read through the Gospels, there's an emphasis on his humanity. But he's one person with two natures. In terms of his humanity, he's been given all things by the Father. And that is why That cannot be said of anyone else. That cannot be said of anyone else. He must increase. He must increase. We must decrease. Now, our second contrast, contrast number two, we find in verse 32, back to chapter 3, if you will. Back to chapter 3, verse 32. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Okay, no one receives his testimony. In contrast with verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Especially verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. What does that mean? I think the easiest way to grasp that truth is to reverse it. And when we reverse it, I mean, in my mind, it becomes very clear Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Let's reverse it. Whoever does not receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is not true. 
Does that make sense? The flip side, because we're already told that not everyone receives his testimony. Okay, if you don't receive his testimony, then you're setting your seal to this, that God is not true. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal that God is true. In other words, we see the, some of the implication that sets us up for verse 36. Is it a small thing? We, we take it to be such a small thing sometimes to not receive Christ. Now, we don't want you to preach that at the funeral. That's, we don't want that. Really? Is that, I mean, is that a small thing? People who have just lost loved ones and people who are contemplating their own demise, we don't want, we don't want them to hear the gospel. Quite frankly, that is a wicked thing to say and a wicked thing to desire. And it's set in your seal that this is all a bunch of nonsense. And what we're being told by the Word here is God is telling us that if we do not receive Jesus, then our particular position is God is a liar. He is a liar. And that's why in our final contrast, if you look at verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That should make perfect sense to us because if we're setting our seal that he is a liar, what are we expecting? The wrath of God is upon him. Two things I want to point out and I'll close about this. Two things I want to point out and I'll close. One is notice the belief in the obedience distinction. Look at verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Wouldn't you kind of expect it to say whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life? That is not what it says, is it? It says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son. So here the contrast is between belief and disobedience. When Jesus calls us to come to Him, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. He commands us to come to Him. So when we say, no thanks, it's disobedience. And of course, everything else in our life, no matter how upstanding it may appear on the external, it's going to be like Nicodemus. It's going to be like Nicodemus. It may look beautiful on the outside. The lawn may be kept nice and neat. You may be the best of neighbors. You may pay your bills on time, the whole nine yards. But you're setting your seal that God is a liar. And God's wrath is upon you. That should take our breaths away. So the devil would like us to believe, oh, look at those folks. I mean, they don't go to church much. They don't really talk about Jesus much. In fact, they have no... I can't really talk to him about Jesus at all, but they're such wonderful people. And it's true. Some of our neighbors who do not bow their knees to the Lord are the, some of the most wonderful people. You know, if you have an emergency or something, they're the people you'd call and trust. Can you watch my kids while I go to the hospital? And you can trust them for good reason because they're trustworthy. And the devil would have us to believe. The devil would have us to believe. See, it doesn't matter. But what does his word say? 
Verse 36, I think, I've said for a long time, I think verse 36 should be on the billboard. I think verse 36 should be on the billboard. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, that gives you all of the reason to go check this out. Whoever does not obey... Notice the other, the last and final thing I want to point out about this verse is its present implication. Its present implication. Notice, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It doesn't say whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. That would be future, wouldn't it? It says he has it. In other words, it's presently being enjoyed now, isn't it? That means if we're in Christ Jesus, as we're sitting here now, we are presently enjoying life eternal. Not in its fullness, of course, but we're presently enjoying it. Well, it's filling our hearts with hope, isn't it? It's changing us in a wonderful way. We've got these relationships with a church family. We've got so many blessings, we could sit and talk all afternoon about them. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Presently, now. But there's a flip side to this. You see, that's why I think this verse needs to be on the billboard. The flip side is, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say that the wrath of God will come to him. The wrath of God will uh, in sometime in the future come to him. No, it remains on him. That's a present reality. Because he has set his seal that God is a liar. Now, how would God, how, what, what evidence could we have that, that the, the wrath of God is upon us? The answer is a hard heart and a heart that continually grows harder. You see, there may come a day where God will say, okay, I'm just going to step back. I'm just going to step back. Because there's a line in the sand that we can all cross. And once we've crossed it, there's no point of return. That is a fearful thing, isn't it? And one of the problems we have in our culture, and one of the problems we have with many gospel presentations, is it doesn't take your breath away in terms of its denial. You know, to, to tell everybody God loves them and He has a wonderful plan for them and you know, everything's going to be lovely. I don't know how many church signs I've passed that seem to suggest things like that. When I pass those, those signs, I say to myself, my goodness, the unbeliever doesn't have to bother doing anything. He doesn't or she doesn't need to repent. They don't need to believe it. Listen, I can just go through life delighting in my sin, playing, playing fast and loose, living any way I want. God loves me. I'm headed to heaven. Now, who wants you to believe that? It's not Jesus. Verse 36, one more time. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Let's just take that in for a moment. What a future. What a future. But alternatively, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why should Jesus increase? Jesus is from heaven and above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. He has heard every word that comes from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He utters the words of God every time he speaks. 
He's received the Holy Spirit without measure, and the Father loves Jesus and has given all things to his, in His hand. You can get those right out of all of those verses. And he who, in contrast, is of the earth, speaks in an earthly way. And he who receives sets his seal to this, that God is true, and he who believes has eternal life. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel presentation that I think is really the last thing that John the Baptist proclaims in Scripture. Well, Father, what a perfect way to go out proclaiming the gospel like this in such a powerful way. Help us, O Lord, to digest these truths, first and foremost, for our own personal salvation. But secondly, O Lord, that we may share these things and proclaim these things with others. Help us, O Father, to digest and to feed upon these things for our own edification and for the edification and salvation of those who are around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.